0: Morning, everyone. We start with breaking news on inflation. We've just had the figures uh, within the last few seconds. Bad news, back to double digits. Let's find the out. Soft
1: pasta has nearly doubled in two years as costs rise for a wide range of basic supermarket food items. Although official figures suggest overall UK inflation may have peaked at 11.1% in October, the rate of food price rises is still inflation running. Inflation at figures for in November
2: 27%. have just been published. You might want to look away now. Inflation currently running at. 10 10.7 sold to a record rate in December, with some households skipping meals to save money.
0: Figures from the British Retail Consortium show food prices hitting a high not seen since records began in 2005, with the typical food grocery shop in December costing 13
2: points.
3: Welcome to The Full English with me, Lewis Bassett. That was a sequence of news clips about the rising cost of everything in the UK, including food. And this is an episode about how a higher cost of food used to make us angry, and whether it still does so today. We're going to find out why food prices have increased. But what I want to focus on is whether the higher cost of living mobilizes people to take action. If expensive food doesn't make people angry today, as it did in the past, then I want to understand why. The Full English is produced by me, Lewis Bassett. Forest DLG does the mixing and sound design.
1: Food prices are rising more rapidly than inflation in general. So over the last year, the average price of food has gone up about 14.6%. So that food inflation is about the highest it's been for, for four decades, for the last sort of 40, 41 years or so.
3: This is James Meadway, an economist and the host of the brilliant Macro Dose podcast. James explained to me that what we call a cost of living crisis has two elements. On the one hand, are price increases, especially in energy and food.
1: But on the other is low wages. So you've got prices rising and then you don't have the money that people earn from different sources is not keeping up with that. So wages at the minute in Britain are rising around about about 4-5%. or 5%. But prices, in other words, inflation, on average, is going up about 10%, just over 10%. So that means that most people are seeing a real squeeze on their income because the amount of money they have doesn't go as far as it used to. Everything costs more, but your wages, your salary, or your benefits, whatever it might be, has not gone up nearly as much. So that's the cost of living crisis. Before we think about the consequences of
3: this, let's think for a moment about the causes. James explains this in terms of what
1: he and other analysts call a polycrisis. So it's lots of different crises all arriving at once, but there's a lot of instability in the world from different sources. Most of this stuff, the really big impacts we've seen in the last sort of 18 months or so, are hitting on how we produce and sell and distribute and consume food. So if you take Britain, a lot of people get very excited about this. It's added a bit to inflation, a bit to the price of food. It's Brexit. Just the way the the deal is working out, the fact that it's much harder to trade with our major source of imported food, which is the European Union, has added a bit of a cost. But it's not just that, because actually the price of food is not just going up in Britain. The price of food is going up right the way across the world. It's going up in Europe as well. That's not
3: because of Brexit. So the most immediate major cause of high food prices is obviously
1: Russia's war in Ukraine. If you take Russia and Ukraine together... These are about the two, in fact, they are the two largest exporters of grain, of wheat, of maize, of lots of fairly essential products on the planet. So when the war happens, Ukrainian harvests are completely disrupted. Right, The country's now a war zone, so that's really damaged the harvest there. Exports of grain from Russia are disrupted in lots of different ways. There's sanctions, there's attempts at blockades in the Black Sea to get grain out. So there's huge disruption on some really, really critical, like, basic food products. And then stretching out a little bit further, you find that Russia's also uh, a major supplier of fertiliser products. So the price of fertiliser has gone up, yeah, you know, like 45 50% in the last year or so, globally. And if the price of fertiliser has gone up, that's going to turn into how much it costs to grow your food.
3: Then, on top of all of that, is climate change. And that's a problem that isn't going
1: away. Climate change is a real thing. It's becoming harder to grow crops in various parts of the world. Um, coffee, in the last sort of, again, 12, 18 months or so, the price of coffee has spiked because you find that harvests in Brazil have been damaged by this terrible combination of droughts in one part and then frost in another part, so less coffee around. And it's just basic sort of market stuff here that when there's less of something around, but people still want it, the price is going to go up, and that's what you see happening. So that's why food prices are going up.
3: But... As James has said, the cost of living crisis has a lot to do with stagnating incomes as well. And that, he explained, is largely a consequence of having weak trade unions. In the post-war period, most workers, up to 75% in 1979, were covered by collective agreements on wages negotiated between employers and trade unions. Today, only 23% of workers are in a union, and that figure continues to fall each year
1: workers don't have that bargaining power that once upon a time they might have done. Um, And that's a real problem if you have high inflation, because it means that suddenly you don't have the protection.
3: In April 2022, a survey conducted by the Food Foundation found that 15.5% of all UK households were eating less than usual or skipping meals because they couldn't afford food. Food banks first appeared in England as austerity started to bite in 2010, and they haven't gone away. In fact, data from the Trussell Trust shows that they have increased each year, spiking during the pandemic, and with increasing numbers depending on charity for food during this cost of living crisis. But does any of this make us
2: angry? Because in the past, it certainly used to. So if we take Somerset in uh, 1801, midst of an extremely severe scarcity, there's a particular morning where crowds, obviously by pre-arranged organisation, start to convene from smaller villages into the market town of Netherstowey. This is Steve Poole,
3: a professor of history at the University of Bristol. Steve is an expert in the protest politics of high food prices from the
2: early modern period to the early 19th century. So this is in April 1801. They produce uh, a list of demands or grievances. It's in the form of a petition, which they want signed. So somebody then reads it out and said, like, no, bread should be this price, beans should be this price, Um, cheese this price, milk this price. These are the the just and fair prices for these commodities, which have been soaring in value over the last few weeks. We want this to stop... Um, Everybody say aye, everybody puts a hand up, and then what do they do next? They don't go and threaten the producers or the retailers who's, who have put the prices up. They go looking for a magistrate. So they've got that sense in their heads um, that they feel and they're quite convinced that a shared set of values has been contravened. This crowd, angry about the price of
3: basic food items, proceed to Taunton via Bridgewater to find a magistrate. As they do... The crowd grows in size and 400 people find themselves on a
2: 20-mile walk. Until finally they find a magistrate who comes out and makes a great show of sympathy with them and says, well, we'll do whatever we can to put the prices down. And they say, will you sign the petition? And he says, I'm not signing any petitions, but uh, we will do whatever we can uh, to put the prices down. You must all go home. And so they do. Uh, And you say, well, what did that achieve then? What it achieved, actually, was that the magistrates in that part of Somerset, the following day, pretty quickly, called the farmers together, called the the landowners and the retailers together and got them all into a room and they said, now then, we're all gonna have to come to an agreement that we bring lots of grain to the market next Saturday and we put the price down. And that's what we're gonna have to agree, do you agree? And of course, well, you know, what chance, what choice do they have? This is one example
3: of what are typically referred to by historians as food riots, but which are probably better seen as a form of community politics. Whatever we call them, they were incredibly
2: common, as Steve explains. What we call food riots or food price disturbances take take a number of different uh, kinds. You know, so it's not the one I've just described to you isn't the only thing people might do. Um, A very common uh, thing uh, is for a crowd to rise in the marketplace. sometimes seize uh, corn or um, cheese, you know, e- potatoes, something fundamental that they believe has been engrossed, you know, held in large quantities in order to force the price up. They'll seize it from the producer, uh, or from this middleman, and then pay him, but pay him the price that they think it should be. Mm. So it's difficult to think of this as a, <laughs> as a sort of behaviour you expect to find in a riot, I suppose, because there's no sense that this is being done in a, in a wildly disorderly manner. There's a common agreement about what the price should be, and they're perfectly happy to pay him that, but they will not accept his right to dictate the price.
3: Steve is describing a period of history in which the cost of food partly came down to what consumers and magistrates thought was fair. This is what the historian E.P. Thompson famously called a moral economy. You're listening to the Full English Podcast. It's a show that Forrest DLG and I produce with almost no budget. If you want to support it, you can start by sharing this episode. Send a link to your friends on WhatsApp, post it on your socials, the usual stuff. But if you want to help make this show and ensure that we cover more topics and more often, then please go to patreon.com forward slash full English and sign up for as little as £3 a month. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Dot com forward slash English. Thanks for your support. It's a bright but cold afternoon up in Rotherham, South Yorkshire. My dad is from this neck of the woods. So to an East Midlander turned Londoner like me, everything here from the accent to the muddy fields to the run-down high streets feels both weirdly foreign and yet also deeply familiar. I've decided to make Rotherham the place where I conduct a not-so-scientific survey for this episode. To do this, I stand outside Tesco and ask people how they feel about high food prices. And the first person I chat to is Shand, a man in his late 20s. It's
2: pretty tough, I'll
1: yeah. be honest. Um, I've, I've been out of work for about four years now. Wow. i am um, struggling, you know, with stuff. Yeah. Um,
2: I live off 600 and something quid a month. Yeah. And bills and everything, is just, it just rinses everything. I buy the cheapest stuff I possibly can.
3: Shand happens to be one of the few people I met who seems genuinely angry. And he directs that anger at the Conservative government.
2: I'm not huge on politics, but, I mean, anybody with half a brain can see the Tories in the, the whole country. What are we supposed to do? Yeah, We've got another, what, another year of this? Something needs to be done.
3: I spoke to 26 people in Rotherham for this episode. All of them, bar one, felt negatively about higher food prices. As well as blaming the government, Shand also expressed his support for striking workers. But Becky, a single mother, also in her late 20s, expressed to me views that I found to be far more typical.
0: It's probably something that we're going to have to accept, isn't it, but I hope that the they can do something about it.
3: What do you say to people who say that it's a political problem, we need to like change the government or do something, protest, something like that? I
0: don't really know, to be honest. Um, I really try not to get involved in you know politics things, but it's just hard for everybody, isn't it? So... Something needs to be done, but I don't know what.
3: This is Mick, a tree surgeon in his early
0: 40s. I take trees down, so I, I'm all right at that, and then leave people to run country, I think. <laughs> That's where everybody's got a job to do. But leave him to it
3: Mick says that he's concerned about high food prices but he's not struggling financially but things are much worse for Tanya
0: that's all been with my sister because with, uh, my health condition yeah I've got a bad, bad back right so which is a bit easier yeah. but he's still in that easy if you know what I mean because there's eating yeah. so we can only have it on really at night and yeah. I um, have a water bottle in the afternoon yeah. we have blanket. So, and it is, it's hard.
3: As well as cutting down on their use of heating, Tanya and her sister have cut down on what they eat. Despite that, Tanya was despondent when I asked if there's anything we can do about the cost of living crisis.
0: Is it because is it of war? I don't know. Is it for Ukraine? Um, I don't know. What can, what can we do? Because it's just getting worse and worse every week. Uh, with food, with, with bills... I mean, what could, what could we do? I mean, we're doing our best, really, but what can you do?
3: Standing outside Tesco in that cold afternoon gave me the sense that while many people are struggling with higher food prices, unlike in the past, most of these prices are something they cannot control. Certainly, for the few handful of people I met who saw this as a political problem, it was not a problem that they felt they could do anything about directly. And yet, Rotherham wasn't always this placid.
0: Food riots were happening everywhere. Um, but what can't be doubted is that South Yorkshire just seemed to be more radical than other parts of the country at the time.
3: This is Joe Stanley, whose PhD specialised in the history of working class politics in South Yorkshire.
0: So between 1793 and 1796, um, there was a 33% increase in per quart loaf of bread. There was an 89% increase in the price of meat per pound. There was a 55% increase in the price of butter per pound. And there was a 33% increase uh, in the price of cheese per pound. So all the main important parts of a working class family's diet increased significantly in price. And what we find is that the poor, they were not silent. There's violent disturbances out, And the most significant of these is in Sheffield on the 4th of August, 1795. Mm-hmm.
3: In this uprising, two men are killed by a small militia drawn from the local property-owning middle classes who fire their rifles at the angry crowd of hungry artisans.
0: One of the witnesses was someone called Joseph Mather, who was a Sheffield filesmith. Um, And he was also a working-class poet. Um, And he wrote the following lines in response to the, the, the massacre. Corruption tell me homicide. Is willful murder justified? A striking precedence here was tried in August 95, when armed assassins dressed in blue, most wantonly their townsmen slew, and magistrates and juries too at murder did connive.
3: As we've already heard, protests like these were common going back to the 1500s. And they continued in South Yorkshire when the price of food rose again at the turn of the 19th century.
0: By the winter of 1799, things are really desperate. Uh, and soup kitchens are opened in the principal towns, so Leeds, Sheffield, Barnsley, Rotherham and so forth. Um, and often these are, these are run on aristocratic subscriptions. The, the, the rich pay in to contribute to the, the poor. However, that's not enough. And in the summer of 1800, food riots break out in most of the urban centres. Um, there's a riot in Leeds, led by the Colliers in May 1800. Um, and the poor of Sheffield, uh, later in the summer break into a flower warehouse and women walk down the West Bar, which is a street in Sheffield, smashing the windows of the meal sellers.
3: Events like this happen again, but even more dramatically, 12 years later. This time led by out-of-work artisans who were forced to dig the foundations of a new cemetery. Rather than dig graves, the artisans marched on empty stomachs to the market where they stole food. Their numbers grew in size as they paraded through the town, throwing a potato through the window of a local journalist before proceeding to an arms depot.
0: They get to the depot and a ringleader shouts, all in a mind, all in a mind, and they start stoning the militia depot. They overpower the guards, um, and they run into the magazine and start stealing the weapons.
3: You get the idea. At the same time, these occurrences in the radical South Yorkshire of the first two decades of the 1800s are really the last gasp of such forms of protest in England. Things are changing as the community politics of food riots are being replaced by organisations, like trade unions, that are centred on class.
2: And that's partly to do with the way that lifestyles are changing. The urban experience is changing. Industrialisation is changing the way that people relate to one another, the way the world of work uh, happens. Uh, So the sort of community politics that used to make it possible in a small market town, say, for a magistrate to know half the members of a crowd and address them personally and negotiate his way out of a difficult situation. That tends to disappear in a growing industrial town like Birmingham or Manchester where no one knows anybody anymore uh, and people are living in filthy conditions, you know, enticed into the town with the promise of high wages in an industrialised setting and uh, class interests start to impose themselves over the old community values that allowed moral economy to work.
3: The idea of a moral economy, E.P. Thompson's concept, which I referred to before the break, describes a world in which prices could be determined by custom, tradition, and collective notions of fairness.
2: the, The clue is in the name. It's a moral economy. So it's a way of thinking about economics in moral terms.
3: Although price-setting markets appear to us today
2: as neutral and everlasting,
3: they are in fact the product of a whole range of ideas and institutions that were forced upon the world at the turn of the 19th century, replacing this older moral economy.
2: Round about 1795, you, you can see a change in attitude. Central government starts writing to magistrates and saying, you know the way you always used to intervene in the marketplace and seize goods that weren't being sold underweight and all that kind of thing? But stop doing it. Um, we need to let markets find their own level. We need to, laissez-faire politics is the future. They'd all been reading Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and, uh, and taken it on board in central government and said, you know, well, this is the way it's going to be from now on. Um, so, you magistrates, just stop interfering. paternalism is dead it 's from this point
3: at the turn of the nineteenth century that we begin to see the dominance of a new era of modern market based capitalism
2: it 's to do with property rights, I suppose in the end isn 't it it 's to do with it 's to do with assuming that 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 The goods being sold are the property of the seller and it is entirely up to the seller what value to put upon them. There is no kind of common moral value which we can all agree and argue about and, and, then, um, and then we can set a price by common agreement. I mean, no, 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 the, the, <laughs> the owner of the produce is the person who dictates the price and the, and the full force of the law is then used to uphold that right. So uh, it, 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 uh, it protects the rights of the powerful, but, but completely negates what were formally considered to be the rights of the poor.
3: Markets are seen by us today as neutral and natural or certainly things that we can't control. Like rain falling during Wimbledon, there's no use getting angry about that. Except it's not true. Markets are man-made. They require laws, ideas and other institutions in order for them to function. In fact, by exploiting their market share, huge agribusinesses have made a killing both out of the pandemic and the cost of living crisis. Supermarkets like Tesco continue to make year-on-year profits paying huge dividends to their shareholders. But perhaps the most striking thing is that the number of billionaires in our society has grown at the same time as so many of us have become poorer. All of this is the product of a certain kind of free market capitalism. But it's also a political choice and not a natural reality. This is Steve
2: Paul again. The main thing that's lost when moral economy vanishes is actually that sense that We have a legitimate right to subsistence. I mean, I think, you know, it's easy to complain now when prices are are raised too high or we think that there's something immoral about the way that markets work. Lots of people think markets work in an immoral way. But what we don't seem to have is a shared understanding that that's illegitimate you know in in the sense that um, you know we are perhaps now all Thatcher's children <laughs> in, in you know the the sort of behaviors the for the forestalling, the regrating and the engrossing that took place in the eighteenth century uh, and was stamped on occasionally at least by the authorities as uh, illegitimate. That's the sort of thing in the 1980s we learned were entrepreneurial virtues. You know, this is getting on in the world and being competitive. And we might think it immoral and we might be upset by it, but what I think we've lost is a sense that, hang on, there should be laws to prevent that kind of thing from happening. Profiteering for its own sake is a bad thing. We just don't think in those terms any longer.
3: The Oxford English Dictionary defines anger as a strong feeling of displeasure, dissatisfaction or annoyance generally combined with antagonism or hostility towards a particular cause or object. Should we feel this way about high food prices? I think the answer is yes. Although we cannot, in the short term, control the major causes of high food prices, I think we can control whether or not we can afford to eat and lead a decent life. We can control whether we live in a society in which a tiny but increasing number become billionaires while others are forced to go to food banks. And we should be able to expect that our governments take climate change and food sovereignty seriously. In this way, anger is a progressive force. But being angry requires us to see the social world not as preordained by God nor the product of nature. It requires us to see that the economy is something we can make for ourselves. Just as price-setting markets were invented, so too can they be altered. You've been listening to the Full English podcast produced by me, Lewis Bassett. Mixing and sound design is from Forest DLG. Find the Full English on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Thank you to all of our guests. Find out more details about them in the show description. And thank you for listening.